and get started. Uh, this ought to be kind of fun. Uh, I'm going to apologize for a couple of things uh, before we get started. Uh, one, when it comes to stuff like this, I'm a turtle. I'm a total um, uh, history nerd. Uh, so you're going to get a lot of nerdful stuff today. This is going to be, I apologize that this is going to be a little bit heavy on history and it's going to be a lot, a little heavy on uh, uh, kind of set up for what we want to talk about next week. Um, so that means apology number two is those of you listening on podcast or just the audio version of this, we have some great pictures we're going to be showing and we're going to try and describe a little bit. Uh, what you're saying, but try and get maybe a, a copy of the PowerPoint if you hear this auditorially. And I have to say that because uh, for those in this class, you may not be aware of how many people are actually kind of tuning in either by podcast or by uh, just as the email goes out. And so they're, they're listening to this class uh, a lot of places. I will About two days after we do this, my daughter up in Utah will, will say, hey, that was a great class, Dad. Oh, well, good. Aww. Uh, so that's kind of how we're doing it. All right. Uh, that said, let's um, now maybe a, a good way to kind of approach this is the idea that um, that uh, when we take a look at the evolution of church doctrine that we that we follow today and this week, if if we could be somehow transported back to about 1840. And we watched how the church did sacrament meeting. We watched when they had fast and testimony meeting. Uh, we would be kind of surprised because it wouldn't necessarily look like our sacrament meetings. If we could see the church in 1890, we would be surprised at what we were watching. Uh, if you saw the church in, in 1930, you might see girls passing the sacrament. And you'd go, that just doesn't make sense with what we're doing now. And you just watch this evolution procedurally and understanding-wise of how things work in our church. Okay? Um, yeah? Yes, they did. Early on they did. And then, then there was a movement to kind of give uh, boys more priesthood responsibility because they were getting into trouble and things, and so they made that more strictly uh, something that boys did. Okay, and you'd go, well, that's not how we do this. Well, that's how they did it. Okay. Now, in the uh, in uh, the Jewish tradition, what we're going to find is that there was also an evolution in terms of what they believed, what they taught, where it came from, how they did it, because we have a sense of saying, okay, here is here is Jesus in the Gospels, railing against this, preaching this. This is the people pushing back. And you have to see that there's about a thousand years of evolution that got to where Jesus was in the Gospels. And so today I want to kind of back up a little bit and show you how we got there because it'll give you some idea why people are reacting uh, the way they are. And, and especially is that's true when we get to the temple. Okay, so I want to start... We're going to go all the way back to uh, worship under Abraham. Uh, and so let's, let's kind of break it into three parts. Under Abraham and the patriarchs, how did they know what God wanted them to do? Who did God speak to? 
Abraham. Yeah, uh, that's right. God talked to Abraham. God talked to Isaac, to Jacob. They're, the prophets were the leaders of the group. Uh, and, and they believed that the heavens were open and there was a constant dialogue uh, speaking to them. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, what God did that? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Because then, but again, the idea was is that heaven, the heavens are talking directly. You're exactly right. There was kind of that full first school of the prophets goes back quite a ways. Okay, because Adam had been speaking with God, and if God wanted Adam to do something, God would tell Adam to do something, and he would do it. Okay, it makes sense. Okay, now, what gods were they worshiping? Who was the god they worshipped? Who was, who was in the heavens talking to them? Jehovah, Jehovah and Elohim, Elohim and <laughs> one of the, the, the research that, that uh, is kind of coming out pretty solid uh, suggests that there was Elohim, there was Jehovah and that there was a belief generally among the patriarchs that that Elohim had a, had a wife, a consort, by the name of Asherah, or Asherah, okay? Uh, it wasn't necessarily her doing all the speaking, but certainly uh, she, was, she was there, she was part of that. Uh, and again, if you, if you want to read Asherah's words, go to Proverbs 7, and you'll, you'll hear her pretty prominently. Yeah? Is that the same as ISIS? Nope, hold on to that. Hold on. She wanted, is that the same as ISIS? No, we're going there. Okay, but that was kind of their sense that there was more than one God in the heavens. They were a pluralistic, believing people. Okay. Now, if that's true, where are you going to worship these these gods? On the mountain. On the mountaintop? Could be on the mountaintop. Could be... Could be... Yeah. You had personal altars. You would just build... You would build... You know, if you had a group like... Like uh, among Abraham, you would have a personal altar that you would worship at. When did that become a no-no? Hold on to that. When did that become a no-no? You're going to watch how that gets eliminated. Okay. Now, by the way, I do like this. Uh, I've, I've told the story before that uh, a few years ago we, were, we had a tour group in uh, Santorini and we had a, uh, on the island of Santorini in Greece and we had a, a tour guide and she, is, she had converted to Greek uh, Orthodox religion and, and part of our tour is that we went down into her little village and we went to their little personal church that was really just for their extended family in this little village had its own little graveyard had its own icon that they worshipped but it really was just for their little family okay they had their own little personal space and I think that's that's kind of what this was is that if if you're going to go out somewhere you build your personal altar and you worship and by the way we get shades of that breaking all kinds of rules from Lehi in the first part of the Book of Mormon and, and we'll talk about why that was such an incredible breach of 
protocol and why it is that Laman and Lemuel felt like he should be killed because he was breaking the law that was in, uh, in place at that time in 600 BC. Okay, yeah. Elephant's wife? Yes, right. I come over here, I mean, that's a topic that's kind of common knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm kind of giving you the, uh, wh where this has come knowledge-wise, if you're reading, um, uh, if, if you want to know more about this, uh, Daniel Peterson at BYU, uh, Margaret Barker uh, has, has been lecturing at BYU, talking prominently about the role that Asherah, by the way, anybody know what Asherah's, uh, Symbol is? It's a tree. Yeah, it's a tree. Okay? I'll talk about how she comes in. Hold on to that idea. Because by the time we get to Herod, she's gone. They've, re they've removed anything to her. Okay? All right. Worship under Moses. Now we get them, they go off to Egypt. For 400 years, they're basically Egyptians. And so Moses is trying, when Moses is bringing them out, he's got to begin to treat and train these, these, these Hebrews back to the religion of the patriarchs. Okay? So, where does revelation come during the time of Moses? The heavens are speaking. Who are they speaking to? To Moses. to Moses, right? Yeah. He, he's going to get, and God talked to Moses, okay? Um, who are they worshiping? There's still a sense that by this time, researchers said that they'd quit kind of addressing as much um, Elohim as they were directing their, their prayers towards Jehovah. And, but now Jehovah's wife was now Asherah. Okay, that Jehovah had, had a consort. It had, it had evolved. Evolved? It had evolved. Too much Hebrew. Yes. Yeah. Um, okay. Now, where are they worshiping? In the tabernacle in the wilderness, which was in a sense kind of copied after what? Sinai. Right? That that was, in essence, that first post-Exodus uh, temple where God came in to a certain place and spoke and the prophet could go and speak. Yeah? So from this picture, it, it's showing the pillar and that they followed and, and that yeah. them and protected them. That was supposed to be a physical manifestation of God. Right. Which version of God was that? Well, see, back, back then for them, both on top of Mount Sinai, and then there was a belief, and, and we don't really have a record, I don't think, uh, of the Shinha, the, the glorious pillar of power coming and resting on the tabernacle. We do with the Temple of Solomon, but I, I, don't, have, I don't read this, but we certainly have it on top of Mount Sinai. You know, because remember, Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, talks to God, he comes back. Hey, I want to bring you all into the presence of God. The Doctrine and Covenant says Moses really wanted to bring the people into the presence of God. And he says to the people of Israel, come on, come with me up to Sinai and get, you're going to get to see God to face to face. And what was, and what was the response in Exodus 20 of the, of the children of Israel? So scared. Oh, heck no. <laughs> Look at that thing. 
that's incredibly scary. Uh, no, we'll wait down here at the bottom, and Moses, you go do it. You go talk to him, uh, and let us know how that goes. <laughs> Is it any surprise then when the law of Moses comes into being, who gets to walk into the presence of God? Only the high priest. And where does everybody else stand? Outside. If that's what you want, that's what you'll get. Only the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest goes into the presence. Everybody else, by your choice, are going to wait on the outside. Hmm. That, that was not an accident that the Lord would set up the law of Moses that way. It was their call, their choice to say, we don't think we're quite ready. We're afraid we may fry up inside that. The, the glory and the power and the shine ha, the this glorious light, fire, pillar, cloud thing that we don't want anything to do with. Okay, all right, we'll give that to you. Okay, but there was a sense that so even in the even in the tabernacle in the wilderness, uh, only the high priest now is going to get to enter inside that tabernacle. Okay, does that make sense? Okay. And, that, that, and then the revelation comes out and then the prophet gives to everybody else. So that's the worship under Moses. Now we're going to roll forward here. Now we get, the, we get the worship under the kings. There is this shining, sometimes we talk about Camelot, you know, that there was this shining moment, you know, of Camelot in England. Well, there's a hundred-year period, this kind of the shining moment in Israel. And, and it's still referred back to, there's a reason why King David is, is the king that everybody ascribes to want to be. If you want to go to Israel today and you're going to stay in the best hotel, what hotel do you stay in? The King David, yes, it's a, you know that was the shining moment of a hundred years. Uh, Saul, David, Solomon, these three kings of Orient Dark. No, these three kings, <laughs> and the worship. And how did they worship during this shining moment when they got here? Well, that's easier said than done. First of all, Revelation. How are they going to know what to do? They still have prophets. And so prophets like Eli, prophets like Samuel, Nathan. How are we going to know who our king is? Well, God's going to speak to Samuel and Samuel's going to go get Saul, right? That's how that works. But it's still knowing that these are kings that are ordained by prophets. And, I, and I've talked in, in previous classes, and I won't spend the, too much time on it. The kings of England still are kind of under that idea because they, they are ordained. There's a moment during the ordination of a king underneath a canopy... <laughs> That traditionally they would sit on the stone, the stone of Schoon, the stone of destiny that they're going to sit on, and then the archbishop comes in and ordains them 
because they are the divinely directed by heaven to be the king. Well, it's kind of, yeah, more of an anointing, but we would see it, kind of, our language would be more uh, ordination. But again, it's done out of the eyes of, um, if you go back and look at the, uh, the videos of the ordination or the anointing of Queen Elizabeth, everything is televised until that moment. Underneath the canopy where this ordination is taking place to designate who the king is. Involved in that. And there is covenant that they have certain responsibilities and jobs, absolutely. As the head of the church. As the head of the church. That's right, because at that moment, even though it was the archbishop that is doing it, it's a little bit like the president of the Quorum of the Twelve being the voice with the Twelve to ordain the next prophet. They're the voice, but at that, after that point, then the prophet is now carrying forward all the keys. Okay, More than you really want to know, right? Okay. All right, so heaven to the prophet, to the kings. Uh, who are they worshiping? Well, there's still, at that point, th there's still a sense that it's mainly Jehovah, and they're also paying homage to his consort, to Asherah. Uh, and I'll show you how we know that in, in just a, a second here. Mainly Jehovah. Um... Where are they going to do it? Where are you going to worship under the kings, the God of Israel? When David... What? They still had the tabernacle set up. They did. In, 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 I think it was in Beersheba, I think. Okay. But they needed something better, right? So under Saul, it, it was not there, but now we get under David. David has this desire under inspiration to do what? Build a temple. And he really wants to build the temple, and the Lord tells him what? No. no. Why? Too much blood on your hands. And I don't think he's necessarily talking about uh, Uriah. Uriah. He's not necessarily talking about Uriah. He's talking about the fact you have been a warlike person you have too much blood on your hands. You can assemble all the materials. Start going out to Lebanon and gathering the wood and going to Tyre and, and getting the material and, and start carving the stones and all that. But all of the, the actual construction is going to be done by Solomon. Okay? So we're going to go ahead and build a temple. Now, what will the temple look like? Now, in the Old Testament, we have, we have God speaking and saying, build it like this. But, um, but, but let me ask you, um, if you go today, if you go to the uh, uh, San Antonio Temple, anybody been to San Antonio Temple? And you look in the celestial room, and there is uh, this beautiful stained glass thing of the tree of life. What's underneath the tree of life in the San Antonio Temple? Anybody know? Blue bonnets. Of course. <laughs> blue bonnets. Okay. Now, are there blue bonnets in the uh, uh, Salt Lake Temple? No. Okay. If you go to the, the Newport Temple and you look at outside of the Newport Temple, what does it look like? Palm trees and it looks like a, it looks like a Catholic mission. 
in the construction of it. It does. Okay? Is that the, the, the same look at the temple in Lubbock? No. In other words, what we're doing is saying these are temples that are going to fit in their native kind of environment and we're going to borrow the architecture of what we're surrounded by. Does that make sense? Okay. So, when it comes time in this very same way with the Temple of Solomon, what's the Temple of Solomon going to look like? And what is the architecture of the Temple of Solomon going to look like? Well, as it turns out, uh, here's what they did. So, they're going to start from uh, the threshing floor on top of Mount Moriah. David says, I'm, I want to, he goes to the owner of the, the threshing floor and says, we want to buy this land to put a temple. And the owner of the threshing floor says, no, you can have it. He donates it to the, to the, the cause. Okay. We're going to build a temple right there. David ends up paying for that property. Right no, nope. he doesn't buy, he doesn't pay it. He's not, he, he's willing, but he's just not allowed. He, he won't, the, the guy won't sell it he just gives it okay so this is this is lo looking north to south Bethlehem is over there so they're going to actually put the temple complex right up on the north end of, of Mount Moriah and then the city will snake this is the old city snakes down this way with the temple up here on the top um so th this is the Mount of Olives that snakes around. C can you kind of picture that a little bit? The, the palace, the palace is uh, probably, probably here. Uh, I don't know exactly where it is, but it's in the old city. That's why it's the city of David, because he's going to put his his palace down here as will a lot of the leaders, as we'll, as we'll look at it as this evolves, okay? So we're going to put it here, and you'll notice that now what we get is this tripart temple. We get the Holy of Holies that's back here, we get the holy place that's right here, and then we get this outer courtyard. One, two, three. Okay? Um... This is looking at it from south going north. So probably I would imagine if you're wondering about his palace, it's probably either here or maybe there. But now that now we're looking north um, and you get um, you just get a sense of kind of what they did there. Now, what's the temple going to look like? Well, as it turns out, Archaeologists, as they're looking at, at shrines and temples from the same period of time, uh, there's a Hittite temple at Andara. Actually, this one was just hit last year by uh, uh, Turkish missiles, and part of, the, part of Andara was, uh, was really heavily damaged. Uh, but the thing is, is that what they found in Andara, and this is a temple right at the same time as the Temple of Solomon. Guess what it has? Outer court, inner court, holy of holies. It's a tripart temple built on the same idea that you're going from profane space out here 
to a little bit more sacred here, to a little bit more sacred as I move forward. Okay? And it's the exact same. In fact, the uh, size of the actual um, uh, sanctuary at Andara is almost identical, identical to the Temple of Solomon. Okay? Including, there were two uh, lions here. Instead of having the two pillars or the, the cherubim guarding the, the veil into the Holy of Holies, they had two lions out here. Yeah. You know what the name of the lions were called? Ready for this? Elohim. They're called Elohim. Him is a plural. And it said, so in essence, the gods are guarding the holy place. Okay? So isn't it interesting that when, that when Solomon is going to start building his sanctuary, he's using the exact layout that was well known to Canaanites and Hittites of the time. Okay? Is that why C.S. Lewis used a lion? It might have been why C.S. Lewis maybe used a lion, yes. Okay? All right. So let me jump a little bit. So, so anyway, questions on that? It did. The tabernacle has the tripart. So could this one have been based no, because even, even if you take the tabernacle, at the time that Moses and the gang is kind of wandering around Jordan and all over the place, this is already in existence. It's been in existence for hundreds of years before that. When they come into, Can when they come into the land of Canaan and they look around, there are already worshipful sites and shrines there using the tripart plan. Okay, so in essence, again, it is like, let's build the Newport Temple. What do we want the Newport Temple to look like? Well, it's going to kind of look like San Juan Capistrano and all the places that are close by there. Okay, yeah. So when you look at the Pearl of Great Price, it talks about how Ham and his descendants patterned the government of their group of people after the priesthood. Yes. It shouldn't be a surprise that a lot of different cultures at that time would have had a pattern that came from something. That no question. There's no question. Because if you want to take it past, past, past into iniqu in, in iniquity. <laughs> Maybe it was iniquity. I don't know. Antiquity. You can probably you can probably start moving stuff forward from the flood and say you can see where, where the influence of this shows up uh, certainly we get that in Egypt and the building of Egyptian shrines and stuff like that, okay? Okay? All right. So, now let's bump forward. Uh, as Solomon goes down and Camelot starts to die out here, now you go back to having this split kingdom. you got Judah and Benjamin, for the most part, down in Judea. you got the ten tribes up and around the Galilee and Syria going north and we have the split kingdoms. So under the divided kingdoms heaven is still speaking to kings but if you're an Israelite living in the north you believe that God's speaking to your king uh, Jeroboam 
Jeroboam. 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 Uh, and the south guys are saying, no, God speaks to our king, Rehoboam. Now, you do have, now, by the way, I will step, to, I step out to say, um, I've got a friend of mine that when he looks at, when he looks at history, he always repeats over and over, history is written by the winners. History is writ written by the winners. So it's, so, so in the, uh, if you go to, uh, if you go to certain, if you go to Richmond, Virginia today, was there a civil war? No. What, what was that conflict between 1861 and 1865? The war of northern aggression. That's right. Or the war between the states, but it certainly wasn't the civil war. It was the war of northern aggression. Okay. But it's called the civil war because it, the history was written by the northern, northerners, right? Okay. Well, in a sense, the, and you really do need to understand this. The Bible was written by the southern guys. <laughs> the Bible was written by the southern guys who survived, that weren't hauled off into captivity. It was the southern guys that were hauled off by Babylon. It's the southern guys who were conquered. It's the southern guys who write the Bible, not the northern guys. So we're going to always get this leaning towards the bad guys in the north and the wonderful people in the south. Okay, does that make sense? Okay, now. So we're getting this. So uh, they're still worshiping Jehovah and Asherah. Now, what you start to get, though, in the north is this, is this uh, kind of this bastardization, this, this spin-off of the Jehovah and Asherah, and now it's going to—it's what Satan always does. Satan takes what's good and twists it and makes it into his own thing. So instead of getting Jehovah, who who loves us and takes care of us, now what are we going to get? By some groups, especially in the north, Baal. You can get Baal. Okay. Instead of having Asherah. With the, with the tree of life and everything, what are we, Baal also has an Asherah consort, a wife, Astaroth, although sometimes called Asherah. And so instead of getting this tree of life, what are we getting with Baal? Groves. Fertility groves. Uh, temple prostitutes. So you're going to get this, this twisted version of the truth. Does that make sense? Okay. And so now at the same time as we, in some places, these shrines, we have, we're worshiping Jehovah and there will be an Asherah tree or a pole that is there. We're also getting Baal worshipers and wicked groves and fertility rites and all those things that Elijah was really struggling so hard against. Okay. Um, and those are now going on simultaneously. That's where this starts to get a little bit mixed. Okay? So, so now we're getting competing temples. Why? Well, uh, for, for uh, Jeroboam, you've now split the kingdoms. Do you really, really, really want your people in the north to actually go down to Jerusalem 
down to King Solomon's temple and do you want them worshiping down there? No. So what are you going to do? You build your own temple. That's right. We don't want them there, so we're going to put our own temple. In fact, we're going to have two temples. Okay. They started their own priesthood, too. They had, yeah, they were going to begin. So we're going to have our own rites and our own temples. So if you're in the north, um, in addition to having these shrines, and these are pictures of some of the Jehovah shrines that always have like an Asherah pole, so, so that we are worshiping those, those are dotted all over the place. Uh, in fact, I think I've got it here. Yeah. Um, I, I apologize for, for stating. This is actually uh, uh, a slide I stole from Matthew Gray at BYU. He's one of our uh, preeminent uh, biblical archaeologists at the time. Matthew Gray is fantastic. Um, and I don't want you to have to try and remember, but he, he's low, these are all of the Jehovah shrines that he has found uh, marking... Uh, in that ancient site. You can just see that they're all over. There was a lot of worshiping uh, outside of the temple. We're not necessarily going to make the trek all the way down to Jerusalem. We're just going to have a local shrine where we are. This is kind of cool. They save us a lot of time. Local, it's like building lots of local temples. We don't have to go all the way to Salt Lake. We can worship right where we are. It's such a deal. Okay? All right. Uh, but but it, it's important that right in the middle of that, uh, um, Jeroboam is going to say, we need our own temple that's not Jerusalem. So he's now going to build a temple at Dan, uh, is, is kind of the primary one. And, and guess how it's constructed? Three parts. It's the tripart temple outside and then you're going to get this inner part, and then you're going to get a holy of holies. Okay? His problem, of course, is that they're not nearly as rich, not nearly as wealthy as Solomon, and so what they get is kind of a poor man's substitute. Uh, and he actually builds two temples, one at Dan and one at... I can't remember where the other one is. But there's, there's two of them. So now they're going to, and then say, say to the people in the north, now it's time to go offer your sacrifices. Come to the great temple at Dan. And I would imagine that was kind of hard for some of the people to go, well, Solomon's temple is really nice. This is kind of shoddy. <laughs> but that's, that's what they ended up doing. Okay? All right. So, so now this is going to continue over a period of time. So, so hang with me now. So now here comes the moment where Israel's religion changes. And it changes fairly dramatically. Okay? So in comes Josiah. And Josiah at the time he becomes king is about, we think, like 15. He's, he's, he's young. Okay? He's got a group of people. The biggest problem that these priests are looking at is the fact that there are all of these other... Uh, can we hit the air? It's a little warm in here. Thank you. Okay. Um, all right. So, so the problem is we've got some people, our people just are worshiping at all these shrines. But the problem is sometimes they're not going to Jehovah's shrines. They're going to Baal worship. And they're not necessarily worshiping Asherah. They're worshiping Aseroth. 
and they're doing the fertility rites. And this is and we've forgotten the Torah. We're just falling apart. And so they're go they've been going hundreds of years without a lot of great worship going on. So under Josiah, it's like it's time to clean this mess up. It's time to to just clean house. So here comes this very uh, uh, sweeping, brutal changes that come under Josiah. Now, without understanding it, sometimes in our, our narrative in the churches, we look at this and we go, "This is this moment where Josiah like gets everybody back to believing in the law, and it's a really good thing." No, it was a massive change. President Nelson has nothing on Josiah in terms of changing the administration of things. Okay, this is a big shift, and let me show you how big a shift it is. Okay, uh, Revelation. God is done talking. How are you going to know what heaven wants you to do? Read the scriptures. It's only it's Torah only. How are we going to know exactly what the scriptures want us to do? We need the scribes and the rabbis to tell us what's in it. Okay? Does this sound familiar at all? Okay? Because we get the same thing that run, this is like a restoration kind of apostasy kind of thing, isn't it? In the early Christianity, as the apostles die off, where, where is authority going to come from? Sola Scriptura, only from the Bible. How do we know what the Bible wants us to do? Well, we're going to debate it. We will have councils at Nicaea and Constantinople. We're going to debate it and then we're going to vote and that will be, that'll give us our creeds. That, that way we'll know what to do. Okay? The exact same thing is happening under Josiah. We only believe in Torah. We're going to read the Torah to everybody and you're going to obey Torah. Well, how do we know if there's a difference? We will debate it and we will come up with scriptural in interpretations of Torah. Okay? So that's wonderful. Now. So in our day, that's social media, right? <laughs> Consensus says, that's right. If enough people are saying, it must be true. Okay? Now, at this point, though, because we're so bothered by Baal, we are now going to push back against anything Asherah-related. It's only going to be Jehovah. So now in a very brutal effort, they go through and they systematically destroy every non-temple shrine. They systematically burn every indication of Asherah. They burn, there was an Asherah, we think an Asherah pole or a tree in the temple. Uh, Second King says that Josiah tore that out, took it down into the Kidron Valley and burned it and scattered the ashes. And they were doing that all over Israel. Just a massive cleansing. We're throwing out all of the Baal stuff, but in the process we're also throwing out all of the Asherah stuff. It was a, ma it was a complete house cleaning of all of that. Okay? Um, and where can you worship? 
Only at the temple. Only at the temple. In Jerusalem. Okay. Now, by the way, look at the date on this. This is happening 630, 620, 610. Does that correspond to anything you're aware of? Lehi. Lehi is watching all this. Lehi is, is part of this whole picture. Nephi would have been old enough to see this happening. Okay? This is, this is all kind of right contemporary with, with Lehi. So that again, let me say again, that's why it is that when under this, this is called the Deuteronomist reforms, this is exactly why, and we've talked about it before, that when, when uh, Lehi sends the boys up to get the plates, they come back with the, with the brass plates, and, and Lehi is so overjoyed that they've here, it says, my father dwelt in a tent, good chance that's temple, and he's going to create an altar on which they're going to offer thank offerings, Outside of that, out in the wilderness, what's what's Lehi? What's Laman and Lemuel's response to that? Dad has to die. Dad's got to die. Why? Because he's not following Josiah's law. What does that tell you about Laman and Lemuel? Are they really wicked, horrible people at the beginning here? They are by the end, but they were strict. Deuteronomist. Exactly. And part of the, under Josiah, what happens to somebody who is creating shrines and worshiping outside the temple? Death. Death. You kill them. Laman and Lemuel, like Nephi said, are just like the Jews in Jerusalem. They are deuteronomically motivated to eliminate false prophets. Because... Lehi has two sins in their eyes. He's doing sacrifices outside the temple. What's the other thing that Lehi is doing wrong? He's having visions. How dare you? We don't do visions. You've got to follow the Torah. And anything outside of that is bad news. Kill them off. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay? It, it, that's why I say... Uh, some of this history helps us understand the New Testament but the Old Testament, but I think it's also going to help you understand the Book of Mormon. Yeah? Wasn't there something in the law that allowed for an altar to be built three days traveled from? But if you weren't going to be able to offer sacrifices. I mean, I mean, in a sense, some of that is earlier, but by the time Josiah gets done, and certainly by the time they come back out of exile, they've been in Babylon, they come back after 70 years, it is all Jehovah and all Jerusalem temple all the time, nothing else, done. Period. So it solidifies while they're in Babylon, even more than this. But it was already happening a couple of decades before Babylon comes in and destroys the temple. Okay? So... You just kind of get this rolling for you. Just you're just watching the religion of of Israel changing almost right on the spot. All of the other things that we were doing, uh, like our shrines and stuff like that, are going away. Okay. All right. Questions on on that? Okay. I know it's sometimes a little bit different how we see this. That's why some of the research that's happening these days 
uh, especially at BYU on this, is just remarkable, the things that we are learning and now understanding. What did you say Laman and Lemuel were like? L Laman and Lemuel were like the, uh, the Jews in Jerusalem. In other words, they were believing all the Deuteronomic, Deuter Deuteronomic, that is really a hard, the Josiah's reforms. Okay, yeah. She says, did all the Jews go along with this? Only if you want to die. It just seems to me like, you know, in England, when they decided to close down all the Catholic churches and get rid yeah. of it, it backfired on them. Yeah. In a few years. And, and it seems like that happens in other, other histories, that when you're this uh, oppressive to people, and instead of trying to do it with persuasion and other types of ways, it, it uh, doesn't always work, but apparently it worked. Yeah, well, it, it did. She says, uh, under, under, a lot of times in other places, when you get this kind of oppressiveness coming down, you get a pushback on that. Um, this actually is going on at a pretty precarious time. Remember, at this point, you've got Egypt coming up to the west. You've got Babylon that is growing here, and you're kind of the pawn in the middle, and they're battling back and forth. And so it doesn't take long to go from Josiah, I think, to another king, then to like Zedekiah, that the Babylonian king puts on the throne. Nebuchadnezzar put Zedekiah on the throne. So they're oppressive. So part of it is we're going to do this oppressiveness because maybe it's a way to save ourselves from getting overrun by these big powers out here. Uh, and, but it is really brutal. If they're going out to a shrine and you're not willing to burn your shrine, we're killing the priests. There's a lot of bloodshed. It's a, this is a heavy hand. This is, in some ways, it's more like the Nazis coming in and saying, we're going to brutally murder anybody who's not, because we're trying to stamp out Baalism, or the Crusaders, or the Inquisition. Or the same kind of thing. Yeah. Hold on to Jeremiah. We're going to come back. Jeremiah gets left to be the witness of everything, you know, where, where, where some of the other prophets are being hauled off. Jeremiah gets to be the one to hang around and write the story. Okay? I had a couple of hands. Okay, yeah. So, basically, this is really the climate that Yeah, and he's up against this tradition. And again, he's up against... And in his day, who are the prophets? In Jesus' time, who are the prophets? And the priests and the rabbis. So even rabbis like Rabbi Hillel, who comes in about 20 BC, he's come from Babylon. But what he speaks is like prophetic. But he's not getting new revelations. He's, get, he's interpreting the law. Okay? Yeah. No, it was their job. Um, right, right. And, and, and by the way, from a Jewish tradition, why is it that you, and we've talked about this before, I think, why would it be okay to like stone an adulterous person? Why would it be okay to kill a prophet and commit murder? Ten Commandments says you don't kill. What? What? 
rationale allows us to kill sinful people. To, to maintaining the law. But what if you don't maintain the law? And not just get, get condemned. What has happened to Israel every time they allowed sinfulness to stay in their midst? They get destroyed. The way, the way to make sure that we don't have Babylon come and overrun us is to kill the adulterers in our midst, to remain pure. Now, to a certain extent, we kind of do that in our lives sometimes. It says, if I'm keeping the commandments and I'm reading the scriptures and I'm doing everything I'm supposed to, I should be able to control God and, and horrible things that could happen to me. I mean, it's that in space. It's the bigger picture of that. Our righteousness will prevent bad things from happening. And on a bigger scale, they're saying our righteousness and our internal cleanliness will make sure that as a city and as a country, we don't get overwhelmed because we're kind of a small little piece in, in, a, in a room full of really big bullies. And we got to make sure that we stay clean. That's the way we save our life. Okay, yeah, Daniel? Well, Bad things happen. Well, not only that, and I might get some of that. You know, your plague might get me plagued. <laughs> you know, it's like we have we have to stay ritually pure and clean, and that's kind of what they were doing. And that was so. Josiah was in, in my mind. Josiah wasn't just like this controlling mani- megalomaniac. He, in his belief, we've got to cleanse Israel of the wickedness. And in doing that, we're going to do these sweeping reforms. And it's okay if we're actually killing priests at these shrines because we've got to do this to save Israel from the Babylons and the Egypts of the world. Yeah. That's what the extremist uh, terrorists are doing nowadays. They're trying to cleanse things because of those reasons so that they don't get overrun. And it's so hard to reason with them and help them understand that there's a better way of living, but this is so ingrained in them. Yeah, yeah. she said, in a sense, that's kind of what terrorists end up doing. ISIS was certainly working under that idea of saying, we've got to purify our land. You know, that's how, that's how Allah will be pleased. So, there really, when it comes to a lot of religious stuff, there really is no new stuff. <laughs> There's just not a lot of new stuff. This stuff just keeps happening over and over and over. Okay? But I do want you to see, but before we jump here, I do want you to see that in many, many ways what Jesus is going to come in and do in the Gospels in the first century is a restoration. It's as big a restoration to that as, as Joseph Smith was in his day. He was restoring the prior gospel, keeping the law of Moses, but bringing the former gospel back. And Paul's doing, Paul is definitely doing that as he's out preaching. We don't have to get rid of the law of Moses. We just got to update it and, and tie us back into Abraham. And that's, what, that's all Jesus is doing. Let's get this back to where we need to be. And all the pushback is against that, against the traditions. Okay? All right. So, uh, so, so, oh, so let me give you a quick idea here 
Uh, I think this is in 2 Kings, it's like the last part of it. The king ordered uh, Hilkiah, the high priest, uh, doorkeepers to remove from the temple all the articles made for Baal and Asherah. In the writings of this, they start changing even the Jehovah stuff. To, it's all Baal stuff in the way this gets rewritten. He burned them outside Jerusalem in Kidron Valley, took the ashes to Bethel. He did away with the pagan priests appointed by the kings of Judah to burn incense. And the high places, those are the shrines, in the towns of Judah and those around Jerusalem who burned incense to Baal, yes, and to Jehovah. Um, he took the Asherah pole from the temple of the Lord to the Kidron Valley, burned it there, ground it to powder. Okay. He brought all the priests from the towns of Judah and desecrated the high places from all over the place where they had burnt incense. He broke down the shrines at the entrance of the gate of Joshua. You just see there was a lot of it, and they were destroying all of it. And just and and the writers of Second Kings ascribe it all to Baal, and only part of it was. Okay. All right. So let, let me tell you how far it goes. So we're talking about Je, uh, Jeremiah. So after, after, uh, after Babylon comes rolling in, destroys the temple of Solomon, hauls the people off to Babylon. Not everybody goes to Babylon. Some end up going like to Egypt. And you get the dysphoria starting to happen. It's the scattering of Israel. And off they go. And Jeremiah is going to go visit, and I think, I think this is in Egypt where he visits with some of the people and he says, see, you were wicked. What were you thinking? And this is why Babylon destroyed us. Listen to what the people, this is uh, Jeremiah 44. They said, we will do everything that we have vowed, make offerings to the queen of heaven and pour out drink offerings to her, her as we did. They were worshiping Asherah. They were burning incense and altars to Jehovah but to the queen of heaven they called her they were baking cakes and that would be their offering okay Baal worshippers were doing fertility rites to, to this queen of heaven they were baking cakes that was their offering to her right as we did um, both we and our fathers our kings and our officials in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem for then we had plenty of food and prospered and saw no disaster. We feel like one of the reasons we were destroyed by Babylon is that you destroyed the shrines. And Jeremiah is going to say, no, 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 it was all Baal. And they're going, no, that was, this was different. And we think that what uh, that Josiah set us up. Because we were doing all of these things to her. And this is, a, this is another one of those shrines um, uh, uh, Jehovah Asherah shrine okay alright so now let me jump way ahead so now so now we're going we're to jump ahead they've been to Babylon 70 years later they come out then the Maccabees rise up and, and throw out the Greeks then we get the Hasmonean period of time and then under the Hasmoneans, they're going to go around and forcibly, these are very conservative Jews, they're going to convert everybody they can find, including the people living at Petra in Jordan. 
And one of the men that is forcibly converted to Judaism is the father of Herod. So, so that means when Herod shows up on the scene, he is a, he's a Nabataean by birth, but he's a Jew because he got forcibly converted. But he is a Greek in his thinking and in his language. But in his architecture, what would he be? Roman. Absolutely. When, when Herod the Great shows up, he becomes, he, and, and uh, Rome puts him on the throne, he is going to be the, uh, Rome's greatest benefactor. He will help support and pay for the Olympic Games. He will help build things all over the place. But they're going to be Roman style. Okay? So, during his time, what's Revelation look like? Only the Torah and rabbi interpretations. Which is really kind of fun, because which rabbis are interpreting? Well, depends on which ones you're listening to. Okay? Well, you see, I'm part of the Hillel tradition, and we believe this way, and outsiders are kind of okay. Really? I'm part of the Shamanai tradition, and we hate outsiders. <laughs> yeah, we're going to quote the Torah to prove that it, we should be ritually pure. Oh, I don't know, in the Hillel school over here, you know, since I grew up in Babylon, that's okay. Paul is going to come in, and he's going to be trained in the Hillel tradition, and then he's going to go, nah, that's too easy on the foreigners. <laughs> I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to go more shamanai. Okay? Um, so, they're in the middle of that. The gods at that point, Jehovah only. We are, it's the one God. We're going to quote the Shema every day. Our God is one God. Nothing else. We are offended by the pagans that these Greeks and Romans are bringing in because it's the one God. And he's a jealous God. It's about the one God. Where? Well, this is a, this, where we're going to worship is a, is a difficult question. Uh, for for uh, Herod, you, you want to make sure you get the support of the wealthy people. So... Most of the, the wealthy families, the ancient Maccabees and the Hasmoneans, they become kind of the, and those that can trace some lineage back to Zadok, these are the Sadducees, and they're wealthy. And they're doing kind of a good business in the temple. And they believe it should only be at the temple. So they believe only worship happens there. Um, now the Pharisees, Pharisees are a problem because they're rural and they don't like the Sadducees and they don't necessarily like what the Sadducees are doing in the temple. But they're kind of in there. If you're Herod, how do you placate the Pharisees? How do you make sure that they don't like rise up all the people against you? How would you do that? That's a problem. 
There are a lot more Pharisees than there are Sadducees. Little, little group of Sadducees, lots of Pharisees. Bribery? You give them seats on the Sanhedrin. Bribery. Bribery. There we go. You give them seats in the Sanhedrin and you don't push it too far. Because part of the problem is the Sadducees like Herod just fine. They're getting really wealthy under, under Herod. If you're a Pharisee and you're up in Nazareth or you're all over the place, life is a lot harder and you don't necessarily... And, you, you know, and by the way, Herod wasn't really a Jew by birth. <laughs> so we're not quite sure we trust him anyway. Okay? So what do you do? Well, they're going to... The Pharisees will form synagogues and before you can eat dinner at a Pharisee's house, you're going to do almost like a temple cleansing. We'll do some, almost some ritual cleansing before we eat, just like we would have in the temple. So we're kind of making our houses into temple because we don't necessarily trust what's going on at the temple. Does that make sense? All right. That's this group. Now, one other group, the Essenes. If you're the Essenes, this temple has fallen, it's bogus, Herod's bogus, the Pharisees are too lenient, uh, you're going to go out uh, near the Dead Sea at Qumran and you're going to build your own temple complex. It's, just, it's all gone south. We're going to build our own mikviots, the, the ritual baths, we're going to do there, and we're just going to stay out in the wilderness, and we're going to start writing the, the scrolls. I'm going to talk about the days when the sons of light will stand up against the wicked hordes that are coming, because it's going to be bad, and we don't want to be around when Jerusalem finally burns, and the sons of light rise up against those invaders, and so we get all, and we're going to copy the Isaiah scrolls over and over and over and over, because we like Isaiah. Zealots. Yeah, they were, and so these were very much zealots. They weren't the only zealots in town, but they were just the biggest zealots. Okay? So, as far as they were concerned, the temple was already, had gone south. Okay? Alright. How are you doing so far? Heavy history? No. Heads full? Okay. Alright. Yeah? Yes. We think so. He certainly do. We don't know for. There's no way of knowing if John the Baptist was part of the Essenes, but everything he was doing certainly fits with them. He's actually operating a little bit north of of Qumran, but but one of the things that we've come to understand just in the last few years, we've learned a lot about the Dead Sea Scroll community. Um, there were a lot of Essenes living in small villages around, and what they would do is. Um, uh, the, the complex at Qumran where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found was almost like a it was like a sabbatical university kind of thing. You might live as an Essene uh, maybe uh, out, out of town and then you might come and stay at Qumran for about six months and help copy scrolls and, and learn things. It's kind of a university kind of thing. Then they would go back home again to their little villages but, but you're, not, you're not going to worry about Jerusalem because it's dead it's full of wicked people 
they perverted everything. So we're just going to maintain. And we're waiting for the sons of light to finally. So when, when the Romans come in to destroy Jerusalem, the Essenes are like, this is it. This is happening. All right. You know, we're not sure. Let's hide the scrolls in the, in the caves. And then we're going to wait here for, for the sons of light to come and save us from the Romans. And then they get run over. Some of the zealots will go a little bit farther south and, and to Masada. But anyway. Um, yeah. So I'm curious about the Levites. Yeah. John the Baptist and so forth. Right. And are the Levites more closely associated with the Sadducees? Hold on to that question because he does something really powerful with the Levites to keep them in his camp. He went, yeah. I have a question, kind of a side question, but I'm, I'm just a so. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So what, I, I have learned that uh, I, uh, my question is why I've been. I kind of have an impression maybe back then the ancient people between men and women they're not equal. I, I feel fascinated why from the very beginning people can accept if they put the women's status lower than the men, why they have the idea to worship both Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother. Uh, also, my, okay. my question about we're talking about those prophets and the rabbi that have the authority to receive the revelation. We, there, are, there were a few female prophets in the Bible. Uh, so I was wondering when, like, a, I think you know my question. I do. Okay. So, so here, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put you off about, I'm going to put you off about two weeks. Because I want to do a whole class on women at, at this time. Because I think they play an, uh, an underappreciated role in how the Savior operated and how it worked in the temple. So hold on. You got, you got, you're going down the right idea. Okay? Especially when we start talking about uh, Asherah and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. The Essenes complex, sort of like a monastic university. Yeah, she says that. Wasn't the Essene complex like a monastic? Absolutely, but not permanent. I mean, some people would stay permanently, but for the most part, it was a university in the sense that you're going to send your kids off to Qumran for a year, and then they come back. They're going to come and actually copy scrolls. They were really a printing center. They were a copying center. They just had multiple. And then it burns. When it burns, it burned up a lot of the scrolls that they had. Okay? Alright. So, we got about 15 minutes. So, so quickly, let, let me just... So, here's Herod's world. As he's having a chance to travel around, he's looking at the, at the things, the, the greatest thing that they've got in, in antiquity, in Israel was the history of the Temple of Solomon, and that looked like a really cool thing. Other than that, our structures are pretty poor. We're just simple people. But the Romans have developed these incredible abilities to build incredible things. Okay, so this is this is the Temple of Artemis in in Ephesus, uh, something that Paul would have seen and appreciated. And uh, up on top, you can't see it, but there's one of the golden statues of Artemis, and she has multiple breasts because she's so fertile. Okay. So that's the complex he would have seen at Ephesus. Uh, uh, here's another uh, view of Ephesus. 
coming down the street. These, these streets are both heated and cooled. There's a, a massive uh, uh, cistern that runs heated water down these streets in the winter. It's kind of cool. These are public toilets that are right kind of in here. Okay. So it's pretty complex, kind of cool place. And he's looking at that. And in Israel, we got nothing. <laughs> okay. Uh, the Forum in Rome. Okay. Wow, look at that. So he's been there and he's, he's appointed by Caesar to go back and be king. And then he's going to go back to Israel and he's going, we got nothing. <laughs> In fact, the small little temple of Zerubbabel that they built when they came back out of exile is just this small little thing. It's not even close to what the Temple of Solomon was. We got nothing. Okay, well, we should build a temple. Okay. So, one of the things he's going to do, here's Masada. So now we start getting these Roman-style villas at Masada. You can build that. You know, I mean, Roman-style is pretty cool, right? Herodium. Wow, even his palace in Jericho, his southern palace, is going to be pretty cool. Okay? And he's, and he's starting to use this Roman atrium style kind of thing like you see in, in Ephesus and Corinth. Okay? Another view there in, in uh, Jericho. So even in Jerusalem, we get this, the, the uh, palace of Herod. Uh, temples over here. Uh, the Antonio Fortress is over here. We'll talk about that in a sec. But here is the, here's the uh, palace of uh, Herod in here. Okay. So again, it's just very, very, very Roman. And it's going to be on a big scale. He's not messing around here. Okay. This is another view of that. Uh, so you got the temple complex, Antonio Fortress, the city. And then here is Herod's complex right here. There's a barracks over here for the Roman soldiers. Uh, real quickly, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to this picture in, in a few weeks uh, simply because we think that the trial of Jesus was here. We think that the, the uh, flogging and everything was here. We think that he is presented to the crowds here. That they would have been here say, you know, crucify him, crucify him, okay. Put the cross on him, which makes this the Via Della Rosa, even though this is the traditional path up here. We think it was out here. This is the road to Bethlehem, going here. So we think he would have been brought down here. He carries the cross up here, around the corner. There is, uh, these were stone quarries over here. And this is where now the, the Church of the Ascension sits. Um, uh, or the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, sorry. Sits over here, and we think he was crucified over here. But it's, it's coming, but, but you just get this massive complex of stuff. So, now, if he's going to build a temple, he's not going to mess around with a temple. It's going to be Roman on scale, it's going to be Roman in style, and it's going to be Roman in impressiveness. Well, so i got to rebuild it. So 
So we get the uh, temple complex as it kind of sits now. But why is he going to rebuild the temple? Well, a couple of reasons. One, this is going to be his legacy. People, and by the way, did it work? What do we call this temple? Aaron's temple. Temple of Aaron. It worked. He, had his, he got his legacy piece. How about that? Okay. Now, pilgrimage. Why would people go to Ephesus? To see the temple of Artemis. They're, and they're going to bring tourist dollars with them. You know, Ephesus is living off of the money being generated. It's a tourist site. Anybody been to Palmyra? Why? Because we want to go to the places where that happened. And we go to Nauvoo. We want to go to the places where it happened. Okay? If you've got Jews, I think Herod's sitting there and go, wow, I've got a million Jews in, over here in, in Alexandria, Egypt. There's another massive group over here in Antioch. I got all these Jews in the diaspora in Babylon. Let's build something they'll come see. And they're not going to come to the little temple of Zerubbabel. Let's build a something to behold worth coming to do a pilgrimage to. So that's what they're going to do. And they will bring their dollars with them. Now, how does he get the Sadducees on board with rebuilding the temple? Well, they're going to have to change the money, right? You guys are going to take a haircut every, off of every transaction. You're going to get rich. <laughs> How about the Pharisees? We're going to honor Jehovah by building a more magnificent thing to him. We talked about, someone's asked about the Levite priests. Here's what we'll do for the Levite priests. Okay? Who's going to build it? Wow. How about we do this? Number one, we promise that during the renovation we'll keep the temple going, so we're not going to shut it down. Number two, we're going to take the Levites and train them as stonemasons. How are they going to appease the Pharisees? The Levites are building the temple. And now we'll have slaves do most of the heavy work, but the Levites will be supervising them. We're going to make the Levites the stonemasons. So actually the Pharisees are building the temple. So, okay, we're on board with that. We can make a lot of money off of this. And we'll make sure that it's built right. It will look very Roman, but okay. Okay? Now, here's the other problem. It's the topography. Uh, Cindy sometimes complains that when we have gone to Jerusalem that everything seems to be uphill. <laughs> it is. That's not an accident. Okay? So here's the problem. Remember that this is under Solomon. So the topography is, is that you've got the Kidron Valley here, the Typhronian Valley is on the other side. Okay? So it sits on two little hilltops, and the hill goes from the traditional city. It goes uphill. goes uphill here and then up over the top. Okay? They did this so that it would be a fortified city, and it would be protected from uh, attackers. So we've got to build up on top here and wall the whole city. But we're going to do it on a hilltop. Okay. Now, Herod looked at, at Solomon's temple and says, I don't want no little Solomon's temple here. That was a little thing. I'm Herod, and this is Roman, and it ought to be a whole lot bigger. 
than this. Now, they had built a little platform up on top of that hill in order to put Solomon's temple here. So here's what he did. They brought in, uh, this is one of the foundation stones. Uh, that, that is estimated at 100 tons. It's one of the largest foundation stones in all of Roman building. And it was brought downhill. It, that's not, it wasn't, didn't start there. It got moved from farther up, farther down, and it becomes one of the foundation stones for this massive platform they're going to put on top of this hill. This is, this is 100 tons of fun rock. And then you, you get these stones that are all massive stones that form the foundation to start building this platform that they're going to put this temple on. Okay? So, this is Solomon's temple. Okay? You see how they took the hill and then they put this, build this platform so they're going to put things on it. That makes sense? Okay? So Herod goes, nah, we can do better. That's what he does. <laughs> he goes, he goes from this to that. <laughs> We're just going to go just a little crazy here. Um, no wonder it doesn't look like a temple mound when you're there. Right. It's, it's all, like it's all sort of flat. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And this is going north. Uh, so, the, so the old city of David is down here. We're going up the hill. Okay. So here's the, the, the stoas right here. Uh, and, and so these massive foundation stones have to form this whole thing here. Okay. Just, just an the, the size of it is just amazing okay now let, let me just show you the I'm going to show you in a second here the main two of the main entrances into this temple complex is this one it's called Robinson's Arch comes up here and then the other one is Wilson's Arch right here okay now if you come up Robinson's Arch or Wilson's Arch this is what you'd come up look this is this is Solomon's porch looking out temple complex is over there. This is the Gentile area. Anybody can come into this area right here. This is where Jesus did a lot of his teaching, we think, at, at Solomon's porch. And then once you got inside, once you got inside here, then this opens up. This becomes the court of the priests before you're going to actually then go. Or I guess this is the women's porch and then into the area where the priests are and now time I, I thought this is interesting so traditionally here's what happens um, this is one of the so here's the this is the west side of the the temple complex here's Wilson's arch right here where they would walk into the temple and up onto that royal stoa there okay uh, and Right here is where you're going to see this. The Wailing Wall right here is right there. Wilson's Arch right there. Can you see it? It's right there. Okay, so that's, that's Herod's Wilson Arch. You can see the, the stonework above right there. So really when, if, somebody, if you ever go to Jerusalem 
and you're standing on the wailing wall right here, you're actually uh, about 50 feet above where the ground was at, at that time. This gives you an idea of the, the massive size of that, of that temple complex. Okay, uh, We have two, real quickly, we've got two uh, reminders of what the uh, what the, the stuff inside the temple looked like. Um, I used to think that there was only one place where you could actually see almost like a photograph of, of the, like the menorah. There's actually two. This is from Magdala, where they were excavating. Uh, at Magdala, there's a wonderful um, uh, visitor center dedicated to women. But when they got ready to make do the parking lot, they start digging underneath. They found the remains of a synagogue in the parking lot. So they cleared all that out, and now we have this. Mag and they found this altar in there, and that gives a pretty good reputation representation of the the menorah from the temple. Uh, that's my photograph. So you can kind of see the size of that altar. Okay. The other place you can see. What the menorah would have looked like is in the Arch of Titus in the Roman Forum. Um, and this is kind of the clay version of it. But you can see, here's the menorah. Give you an idea of what that looked like and the size of that in the temple. Uh, here's the table of showbread. You see that? Little table. Anybody know what these two things are right here? I know, it looks like it, doesn't it? Thor's hammer. For the longest time, I kept going, Thor's hammer. <laughs> Those are actually the silver shovels where they would take the, uh, the burnt offerings and they would dig into the burnt offerings and then they would carry this into the holy place and then, and then these little things right on there enable you to then pour the ashes down into the altar of incense so where you can then mix it with incense and have a sweet smell of the burnt offering uh, prayer uh, and again do we have an altar of incense in our temples today yep you do every single endowment room has it it's the altar that we that's in the endowment room that is the al that represents the altar of incense it's the place where the prayers ascend Right in front of the veil. Yeah. There's a great DVD by Ann Madsen called Opening Isaiah, and she does like a virtual thing of like walking into Solomon's Temple. Yeah. Really amazing. Yeah, and it's, it's this kind of stuff, okay? All right. Uh, by the way, this is what it looks like now. When, it, when you go to Rome, here's the Arch of Titus, and it's, it's kind of weather worn in here, but I, I, I want, when I've taken groups, I want them to be able to see. That there is the representations we have of. Did you say that's in Rome? It is. It's just as as you go from the Colosseum up the hill towards the Forum, uh, the Arch of Titus is there, and on the underside under there is that. Is I mean, it it, it used to look like that. Over time, it, it's come to look like that. So, all right, is, is that plenty? All right. So there, there's a little bit more what it looks like today. And then the destruction. Okay. Whew. You made it. Uh, again, I apologize that it, today was history heavy. 
Um, but I, I want you to have in the, in the back of your head, I want you to wa have watched the, the evolution of what they came to believe and, and that everything was moving them towards the temple. Uh, but how the how temple theology morphed over time, depending on who was in charge of it. So now when we talk about next week, we're going to talk about how, how Jesus began to kind of reshape and restore some of the, the patriarchal belief of what the temple was supposed to be and, and all that. So any final questions on that? Uh, thanks for coming. I'm bearing my testimony that uh, we have in represented here and in our gospels these wonderful concepts that prepare us for our own temple work and I pray that we can do that and I leave that with you in Jesus name. Amen.